Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. and welcome to Nightlight. Your host tonight, Mark Eddy, has an amazing guest with him. He's got Dennis Stone on with him, who is the owner of American Stonehenge. So st- sit back and uh, prepare to be educated in a way that the uh, books in America don't, the history books certainly don't, don't teach you, and uh, become enlightened slightly. So welcome to the show, Mark. Good to have you again. Yeah, was this like show eleven or twelve? Now, yeah. <laughs> I I stopped counting. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, yeah, the last uh, two two times in eleven months, uh, I've had Dennis as a guest. I got fired after e- each show, so I'm a little uh, uh, <laughs> hesitant as uh, we get closer to twelve oh one, and the English Robo Babe uh, cuts us off. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, so, mm-hmm. so ho- hopefully there'll be a show thirteen or uh, whatever is lined up for tomorrow. But that, that's uh, yeah, you know, and we have uh, and you had a great show uh, last uh, night to kick off our uh, what you say quadrilogy of premier <laughs> uh, prehistoric experts. Yes, I did. David Collis was amazing. I got to have him back on again. Yeah, he'll, yeah, he'll, he'll be with us uh, as part of our Christmas show. Uh, what day is it? 11th? December, yeah, eleventh. Right, right. That's our <clears throat> uh, Christmas show to the listeners. That's going to be a a really fun one. It's, he's only part of the panel we have. Uh, to discuss uh, the reason for the season. Ah, it's going to be fun. Yep. And well, yeah, I'm, so I'm they, excited and, about. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, excited yeah, about we, Dennis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, De- Dennis. Uh, we have Jason, Gerald tomorrow night. Uh, mm-hmm. Probably going to be uh, touching on 
Giants, but I think he's uh, gotten wound up about uh, some other other topics, and then uh, he has a new uh, article coming out in Ancient American Magazine. So that you know, uh, we're going to have a whole bunch of uh, Adina and Hopewell stuff, hidden history going on. Uh, uh, the, the mainstream uh, people hiding history uh, tomorrow night, and David Brody on. Uh, you know, he'll Sunday. be with you on Sunday. So yeah, um, uh, yeah, and like all all four guests for this uh, is quadrilogy a word? It is now. Okay. All right. So we. <laughs> You know, uh, I think you've, just, you've coined a phrase. Uh, uh, okay, yeah, maybe, hopefully I'll start getting paid for it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, Don't well, quit your day um, job. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah, it's like uh, all, all four uh, of those uh, researchers uh, got their starts uh, with us, you know, one way or another before they even made it to – Coast to coast. So we're a good stepping stone. Yeah. Stone. Get yeah, we, the. We're a good stepping yeah, stone. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good good segue into uh, bringing Dennis on. So yeah, yeah it's uh, yeah, you may have uh, remember hearing uh, Dennis on a few years ago with uh, Barbara and. You know, he he had many years as a airline pilot, but he's best known as the owner of Southeastern New Hampshire's America's Stonehenge. And you know, let's see, he you know uh, who engineered this four thousand year old archaeological site. Um, you know, Dennis has been researching it for basically his entire life. Uh, you may have seen him on Scott Walters' America Unearthed as they evaluated the summer solstice of what, 2014 or somewhere around there. So uh, w- welcome, Dennis. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you, Barbara and Mark, for having me on and your listeners tonight. Doing pretty uh, good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, what year did you film the uh, show with Scott? Is that 2013, 2014? Uh, the actual shooting was um, uh, 2012, uh, six oh, years okay. ago, and then and then it aired, I think, in uh, January of 13. So it's hard to believe it was six years ago. Yeah, I keep thinking it's like three years ago, but it was 2012. Well, uh, yeah, I, I I didn't realize it was that that long ago <laughs> either. Okay. So yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, you know, we'll talk about the you know, history of uh, your property in a little bit, but uh, maybe start off by talking about uh, you know so, so some of the more recent uh, activities going on at the uh, Amer- uh, America Stonehenge and what you've been doing. Uh, you know, recently, you know, just this past weekend, uh, you, you spoke at a Nero. Meeting. Let's talk about that. And you know what? You know what are 
you know, some of the New England uh, researchers uh, discovering, you know, uh, what's, you know, the, the talk of the town up in your area? Well, uh, yeah, we did have a um, the fall meeting of the New England Antiquities Research Association. Um, they held their meeting over in Nashua for Friday and Saturday, and then their field trip was um, at our place. And they hadn't been over there for about four years. Uh, the group was formed by my dad back in 1964. So they're almost up on the 55th anniversary. So we're, we're certainly uh, very, very excited to have them and host them at our site. And it's been pretty much all Sunday there. And I got a chance to show them some of our finds that we have uh, made in the last couple of years since I retired from flying. I did that for about 35 years as an airline uh, pilot. And um, now I have more time on my hands in the last couple of years. So uh, we have found quite a few things. Uh, my dad passed away about nine years ago, uh, just before Christmas of 09. I think he'd be quite surprised to see uh, some of the things that we have found. Um, and so when Nero was up there, we uh, took him on about a, about a four or five hour tour of some of these signs. We didn't cover the entire hill, but we saw a lot of the different different features that uh, were quite surprising to us, uh, things such as uh, what we call serpent walls. And we think we have about 12 of these, and they range from about, the wall would range about uh, 30 feet up to about, the longest one we believe right now is about 2,550 feet in length. And then the other ones are kind of in between, um, averaging usually around 100 feet in length. And they have a head, they have a body, and then they'll have a tail and some other features in the wall, too, that makes them kind of very, very interesting. Um, a couple of these features in the walls are what we call spirit windows. Uh, these are lintel holes in the wall, and they've been designed specifically, uh, I mean, I should say intentionally. They don't look like they're just where a rock fell out of the wall. They have beautiful lintel stones and stones on each side that support the lintel. And they're usually near the ground. In fact, one of them that we found... Uh, had four of these windows uh, adjacent to each other. And uh, they make no sense if you look at a farmer's wall. They're usually kind of straight or linear. They do curve sometimes, made out of a lot of field stones. And that was one of the reasons they built the walls, is to get rid of all these field stones, especially if you were plowing a field. Um, another thing is for boundary or stock fence. But New England is just filled with stone walls built during the historic period. But we think we have prehistoric walls. And one thing my dad noted way back when he first um, began researching the site in the 1950s, he noticed that the walls had a lot of big slabs of stone in them. And so he felt at the time, and I think we've kind of proven he was correct, that these slabs were part of the bedrock that somebody intentionally uh, split from the bedrock, possibly shaped, and then they stood them up in the walls. Uh, later in the 1960s, we began the astronomical research when we found that some of these are aligned with the sun, moon, and stars. They're actually astronomical alignment markers. Um, and there's also a lot of, like, just big slabs fit up on the side, kind of running with the wall. We call them orthostats. And some of these are, you know, multi-ton stones, and they must have had a purpose to them. They look beautiful in the wall. They're very artistic, but their actual meaning has kind of been lost to time. Hopefully someday we'll have a better idea why they did that. Um, and so the other thing, too, we've been finding um, things like the um, what we think is a megalithic yard on the site. And in the 1970s, I made a diorama while I was in college of the hilltop 
And when we were up there measuring some features on the site and some of the walls surrounding it, we kind of came upon what we already were aware of called the megalithic guide. It's 32.64 inches or 2.73 feet, and it's found throughout megalithic sites in Europe. And we were aware of that. We didn't know if we had it at our site. But when we started doing some measurement, we found that um, these units fit nicely into some of the stonework. But uh, inches, feet, and yards, these imperial measurements that we use over here, don't fit. And this was recognized back in the 1930s by one of our first researchers, Oscar Whitney from MIT. He was an engineer. He put a plane table up on the site, and he measured, he said, every inch of the site and he had cross-sections, profile, and plan views, and we still have all those records today. And he's, one of his comments was, whoever built the site either didn't give a damn about linear measurements. I knew nothing about them because I've looked at every inch of the site, and our measuring system does not, you know, conform to, or the site does not conform to our measuring system. So that's another thing we found up there. One of the things we noticed on our walls more recently in the last two years or so is that the wall will go to one of these large glacial boulders. And we've seen that before, but what we didn't notice, it seems like the wall will take off in a different rec um, direction after that boulder, and it will go to another large boulder, and then it will go off into a different direction to another boulder. And my wife, uh, she mentioned something about rosary bead walls. So, you know, look, what you see is it, like, oh, wow. And the wall, it goes in these big turns deliberately to go to these boulders, you know, kind of out of its way, if you will. If I was a farmer, I might use one rock for a reference and run a wall to it, but to go way out of the way, left or right, to another one, and then back a different direction, like, you know, zigzagging all over the place, and that's what our walls do. So these are some of the most recent finds, you know, in the last, I'd say, two and a half years or so. Okay. Uh, Dennis, uh, you know, you sent me some photos of the spirit windows. What... Purpose did they serve? Um, it's where the wind would blow, I think, through these windows. And people have been aware of this a little bit um, at other sites, uh, particularly up in Vermont and in Massachusetts and possibly Connecticut. And this goes back into the you know the 70s and 80s. And there was a book put out in 1989, Manitou, by Byron Dix and James Maber Jr., two very interesting gentlemen. And the book came out, and I read it back in the very, very early 90s or late 89 when it came out. And then I read it uh, again several years later, and I just read it this year again. Because when I read it those times, I didn't pay much attention, but it mentions in those in that book that there are in Vermont and Massachusetts, and I believe in Connecticut, um, all, all in Massachusetts is on Martha's Vineyard. Uh, they have these little, what they call spirit windows or soul holes. And um, they're in Vermont, they're in Connecticut, like I mentioned. And they also mentioned um, serpentine walls, too. And since we were not aware of any of these features at our site, we thought, I mean, I just didn't pay a lot of attention to those two particular items, you know. They just, since we didn't have them at our site that I knew of, you know, um, kind of just read through the paragraphs. So that's interesting, you know, and, you know, kept on reading. And some of the features, you know, remind me of our site, especially the astronomical alignments. And some of the inscriptions found up in Vermont, particularly, that's where the, most of the inscriptions in New England are found. But not the, uh, not the walls that are shaped like a serpent or the spirit holes. Um, I did have a radio show two months ago with a doctor, and she's a, she does a show about medicine and health, but she's kind of branching out a little bit into um, you know, ancient sites, astronomy, hockey, astronomy, that kind of thing. 
And we had about a two-hour talk, and I mentioned that. She goes, you know, well, she was a nurse in Texas before she became a doctor, and she worked at a hospital. It was a Catholic hospital. And um, she had a key to lock the window and unlock the window so they can open it, close it, let fresh air in, and then lock it for security. She goes, um, sometimes when the uh, family was there and the, and the patient would pass, um, they would ask me to open the window and let the spirit go out the window, you know. So it might be kind of a modern-day kind of idea of, the same kind of thing, you know, letting the spirit pass through the window. So we don't have any other idea what the, these things could be used for because on a farm, you, unless you wanted squirrels to run underneath him or chipmunks, you know, or a snake to go through it, there'd be real no reason to take all this effort. And these stones that are lintels are, were once part of the bedrock, you know, the flat or what we call fractured rocks, you know, they had to be peeled off the bedrock specifically for that purpose, I guess. And, and uh, <clears throat> Yeah, you are finding that th- this pattern is going all across New England. Yes. Like, yeah. There, okay. I think Stonington, not Stonington, Connecticut. Um, I'm not sure how Bo- uh, Barbara lives in there, but that became known to us only two years ago at the fall meeting in Nera, uh, uh, and the meeting was in Groton, Connecticut. My wife and I went to that. It's one of the first ones I attended after I retired, and it was a book written by a gentleman, and it was called Ceremonial Stonework, and I thought it was all of New England, because there's so many, there's like 200-something pictures, and then you read it a little closer, and it's like 8,000 different features, I suppose, it's got to be New England, you know, or Greater New England, and then as you read it, you realize it's just one town of North Stonington, a 35,000-acre area with 8,000 features, and it has 25 stone chambers that look like some of the ones that America Stonehenge. It has over 400 serpentine walls, and that's the first time I really saw that after finding my first serpentine walls at our site. I had found the first ones in the spring of 2016, and this book came out in the fall right around the time of the NERA meeting, six months later, and I'm like opening up, oh my gosh, you know, this is the same thing we have. I was kind of shocked almost when I saw that. It kind of like, I kind of got dizzy from it, like, wow. (laughs) And then you flip through it and you find the windows, and they got the windows down there too, you know. Um, and they look Dennis, like our windows, you know. Mm-hmm. Dennis, are the serpents are the serpentine ones? Patrick and I took pictures of several stone walls in the area that that were we called them zigzag, but but they could have been called serpentine as well. Right. Yeah. Or would, or think, would there be a difference? Uh, the ones in North Stonington is a great example. Um, they have about 400 of them, and the statistics are that they run from about 30 feet in length, which is about the length of the first one I found in the spring of 2016, and always has a head, a body, and a tail, and it runs straight, and it's on kind of an outcropping of bedrock, and that's mm-hmm. two of the ones down in Stonington, and they run up to 300 feet, and the average is about 100. Most of them are linear, in other words, kind of straight. There's a few that are rectilinear with a 90-degree turn to the head, and in fact, during the... Um, meeting on, I was at the meeting on Saturday I spoke, and um, some of the pictures shown were of actual snakes, and they'll have the head twisted 90 degrees to the bottom, uh, to the body, and that's just what some of these walls look like, you know, a 90 degree bend in the head, but then they sure wow. showed some of the curved ones, so we have, I think, two curved or curvilinear ones at our site, most of them are linear, and some are rectilinear, and that's kind of true of North Stonington. And if you go into Rhode Island, right across the border there, most of those are curves. So there's a little bit difference on the Rhode Island side. It's funny, right on the state border, you cross it, 
and it's a slightly different um, shape to these. Most of them are curved instead of straight, like the ones in West Stonington. But they're in Vermont, too, and um, it's not just a New England um, phenomenon, if you will. After the gentleman spoke about his book, Ceremonial Stonework, uh, an hour later, a lady from eastern Colorado spoke by Skype with her two male colleagues, and she's showing the same kind of stonework that we have in New England, particularly in North Stonington and at our site, of carns, carn fields, which are multiple carns. And then something I wasn't too familiar with is what they call a chambered carn. It's actually like a chamber inside the carn, um, tiny little chamber that's almost useless unless it's something that's ceremonial or we put, place an offering or something. She's got the same thing in Colorado, and then she gets into her standing stones, and then she shows some of her serpentine walls, and it's like one of them looks just like the exact triangular head as we have at, you know, one of our 12 walls, you know, one of our 12 serpentine walls. And my wife and I kind of sat up, and we saw that picture, and I'm like, I wish I could have talked to her, you know, but here's 2,000 miles away. So they may yeah. be spread across the country. <laughs> so I would look at that zigzag wall again a little closer to see if it has kind of a either a stacked head, which is a bunch of stones, you know, stacked higher, which kind of rep- represents a head. It's a little higher than the body. Or some sort of a boulder, generally maybe triangular shaped or diamond shaped. Sometimes they're block-headed. But they usually have, you know, it's very, it's very obvious. It has a head and it has a body and it goes to a tail. Some of these, in one of ours at our site, actually has a bulge in the middle of it. The bulge in ours is a great big boulder. We think not only does it head the body and the tail, but that big boulder about halfway down might be its prey going through its system after it ate it. Wow. It's like the tail, you know? And you can have your disbelievers, your believers, or people sitting on the fence, but if you look at it, it's like, and it repeats that pattern over and over and over again. Um, and what is that? What is a serpent? I mean, it's in the Adam, Adam and Eve, you know, in the Bible, it's St. Patty driving out the serpents. Um, and also, it's Draco the dragon, the constellation. And some people say, you know, as above, so below, they're bringing down some of these constellations and putting them on the earth, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about Draco is one of the stars is Thuban, Alfred Draconis. And 4,000 years ago, that was our pole star. So if the ancients are looking at you know, true north, and they were looking at night, they'd see that Draco was revolving around its star, Thubian. And it might have been quite significant to these ancient people, because some people thought the North Pole was a, you know, place of where your spirit may pass in some cultures, you know. Uh, it was where heaven was, you know. I think the Egyptians kind of looked at the bar or the car heading in that direction, too, towards the pole star. Today it's Polaris, 4,000 years ago, and for several centuries it was the pole star. <clears throat> And uh, Dennis, are these uh, serpentine walls you're talking about? Uh, have they been uh, uh, dated, uh, like to uh, being contemporary with the main site that people can see on your, uh, you know, website where all the stone chambers are, or are they later? Uh, Additions to the property. I you know, just just want to know if you know you've been able to get a, a carbon date on uh, when these walls could have been built. Um, that's a great question, Mark. Honestly, um, we don't know the answer to that, except 
that some of these serpentine walls are one of them, the 2,550-footer, does start at what we call the watch house with a large glacial rock with a chamber mm-hmm. attached to it. And when you look at it walking up to the whole thing, and it's it's pretty big, it looks like the serpent head. And then behind it, we only recognized this a little over two years ago, the wall undulates. It goes up and down and up and down these beautiful humps. And um, that wall continues, and it touch, It actually goes through every astronomical sunrise and sunset, moonrise and moonset, uh, and a star alignment with, you know, Thubia and the North Star. Um, so we're not really sure, but those astronomical alignments, um, when they surveyed them starting in 1973 through 77, for the first days of our survey, um, we sent that data to the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Mass. The results came back that if these alignments were used for astronomical purposes, they would work about 1800 B.C., plus or minus about 200 so about 200 years, um, because the Earth's tilt is very slowly changing, um, the solstices, the, the lunar standstills, the what we call the cross-quarter days, will be off today. Uh, the equinox still works. The true north alignment still aligns uh, with the polar axis of the Earth, and above it is Polaris. And due to precession, if you go back 4,000 years ago, like I mentioned with Thuban, the North, the North Stone, however, was the subject of an excavation back in 1989 through 1991. By the, at that time, the president of New Hampshire Archaeological Society she took three years working on that with a couple of assistants. Found a fire pit above the base of the stone, and the fire pit dated uh, to uh, let's see, that was dated to 650 A.D., so about 1,400 years ago. And what it showed was that the stone was already standing there, and then the fire pit was built later. It wasn't the other way around. It wasn't like somebody, like the Patty family, we can get into the Patties, you know, during the 18 and 1900s, the Patty family owned the hill. Like, some skeptics think they built the whole site. That's one theory, but it doesn't carry much weight. But So if they had stood that stone up, you would have dug down through the layers of soil we call strata, and you would have put the stone in, backfilled it, and all those layers, those color bands would have been dis- destroyed by backfilling, uh, and the fire pit would have been wiped out. So the stone was stood up first, and it sits, uh, they went right down to the bottom of the stone during the excavation over those 89 through 91, and they found it was sitting kind of in a little bit of a crevice in the bedrock, which helped to kind of hold it upright, if you will, and then they put some co- cobbles around it to help support it, and they probably backfilled and then very slowly, the rest of the soil accumulated over time. And then somebody around 1,400 years ago built a fire. So we know that the stone was standing there at least 1,400 years. So back to your question, we haven't, what we'd like to do, we haven't dated all the walls other than they work astronomically with the stones that are kind of part of the wall going back 4,000 years. And we have a fire pit that shows that the North Stone was already standing there 1,400 years ago. We would like to do new technology. One of them is... Um, optically stimulated luminescence, OSL, and they take cores of soil, they send it out to a laboratory with do all this cleaning with the soil, and then they hit it with lasers, and they can tell you how long that soil's been sitting there without seeing the light of day. So you have, hopefully have a, you know several inches of soil, um, the deeper the better, and you get to the bottom of it, and hopefully it's never been disturbed by humans, uh, animals, uh, or anything. And you take that, and you send that core out, and then you take some baseline so, uh, cores, and you send it to a laboratory, and then you get your results back of how long that dirt's been sitting next to the wall. And we have thousands and thousands of feet of walls, including those serpentine walls and the standing stones. So 
this is something we would like to do, but it's very, very expensive. Uh, they did a chamber down in Massachusetts that was supposed to be built just a couple hundred years ago by, you know, basically call them skeptics, but the mainstream, well, it's just a colonial root cellar or post-colonial root cellar. And uh, they did testing about seven years ago or on it. A couple of our researchers were there when they did it. And the medium date that came back on it, showing that when it was standing there, not when it was built, but it was already standing there. I believe the medium date, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, was about 1450 A.D. It was even before Columbus's time. So it wasn't two or three or 400 years old. It was older than that, you know. Um, so I'd like to do that at our site. Um, it does take a lot of money, and you have to write people that can conduct the, the uh, taking the probe, you know, the soil probes, and then send it to the laboratory and have it done. Okay, and uh, you know, a lot of people are uh, using drones uh, you know, for larger sites. You know, people can get into helicopters. Uh, you know, hopefully, uh, we could discuss that in one of the uh, books that we hope to be uh, uh, reviewing soon uh it has a, a chapter on uh the aerial photography around Cahokia um but you know uh you know th- those types of technologies are available to h- help you and other people make sense of uh you know, like the bird's eye view of a, a site and what everything may mean when you're looking straight down on it, you know, get, give you some new insights. But, but what, you know, what are some other uh, n- new technologies that are, are available? Like, you know, uh, you've also talked about some like uh, a liquid that you can put into cracks. Uh, how, how does that work? Uh, uh, test work. Yeah, that is called um, protein analysis, and I became aware of it, I believe, through the uh, New Hampshire Ecological Society's uh, their newsletter bulletin that I get. My dad was a member of that group too, since I believe the 19, early 1960s. He was one of the uh, members of the group, and uh, one of my uncles was a member of that group too. And I used to go to some of the digs, but. Yeah, I think it's a fairly new test, and again, I don't know the cost of that. Usually, one of the problems is the cost. You know, these can get very expensive. But if it was a arrow point or any kind of a, like a spear point or a stone knife or, st- or an axe, anything that could have like a microfissure in it, including like even possibly our sacrificial table if it was used for that purpose. Our table is about nine feet by about six feet. It's shaped like a bell, and it has a large we used to say rectangular groove, but it's it's trapezoid. It's about nine nine inches approximately shorter or narrower at the top than it is at the bottom. And it's a deep groove and it has a runnel on it. Um, but the table does have a lot of little cracks in it. I remember Scott Walters uh, talking about the weathering on the stone, and you know, it appeared to him that the stone had been there for not just a couple hundred years, but far you know longer than that because of the amount of wear and tear on the uh, on the surface of the rock. And as a kid, I was up there, you know, as a guide, and people would say, do you think they could test it and see if there's blood on it? Because our answer usually was, well, we don't know, but if it's been exposed to the elements for thousands of years possibly, um, maybe all that evidence has been washed away, you know, and some of the top of the layers of the, you know, small, small amount of the top surface is worn away too. 
But if it has a fissure in it that blood get into, uh, you know, thousands of years ago that protected it, they can extract that. And I believe they can go back around 10,000 years with this, te- this uh, technology. And then they can identify whether it was human or animal, and they can even tell you the type of animal. Um, I'm not sure if they can tell you, you know, like what type of person it was, you know, necessarily. Maybe they, maybe they can. Um, but they just say the type of animal they could identify, so I assume they can tell something about the person, too, if, if in fact, that's what it was. So that's kind of neat. Uh, again, it's called protein analysis, and uh, um, I don't know what laboratories do this and who's qualified to extract that, and then you have to be careful. You don't spend a lot of money on a crack that's only like 100 or 200 years old if, in fact, the stone is 4,000 years old, you know. You, you might be actually going into something that was only a couple hundred years ago, and, you know, you're not going to, you know, you need to do is find a crack that's thousands of years old, you know, if, in fact, any kind of, like, fluid, like, blood get on it and went into this little crack. So that's another, that's another you know, piece of neat technology that's around today. For, and then it kind of gives you a, uh, uh, an answer, you know, more than just a guess. Okay. And, and you, know, you just mentioned uh, the importance of, uh, uh, you know, the labs doing the test and, you know, want to do, you know, su- submit the right sample and, you know, hopefully it's going to a reputable lab. But, uh, you know, you know, the date of, uh, you know, the earliest date of America's Stonehenge, um, you know, it's based on you know, a, a carbon sample, and you know, you've actually had uh, many more carbon fourteen tests done from the uh, all across the the property. Uh, you've had all all, all kinds of different tests. Uh, uh, you know, run on things, and there are a number of uh, time periods. So, you know, the hill's been occupied for or or utilized for thousands of uh, years. But, you know, you you have uh, samples of the, uh, you know, letters you've received from the labs on, on display at the uh, visitor center, uh, but but what, what's the lab you've been dealing with for all these uh, uh, tests that you've been submitting to them? Uh, the first radar cabin dating was done, I believe, 1966, and then we did 67, 68. I think there was another test. I got all the reports as well as, as you mentioned, on the display cases. We have some of the reports um, so people can look at them as they come in. And there's an explanation of what radiocarbon-14 dating is all about. Um, and the test went through the 70s. Um, the last ones we did were in the 1990s. And the first ones were all radiocarbon-14, you know, standard testing-like. And they were done by Geochrome Laboratories out of Cambridge, Mass. And I understand uh uh, looking their name up last year, I was just seeing if they were still around because we haven't dealt with them, in, you know, in a couple decades. Um, they are still around, and they're in, I believe, over in, I think they moved up towards Lowell, Massachusetts area, so they've moved from their original headquarters, you know, the laboratories actually moved. And my dad was 
you know, my dad knew Harold Kruger. The uh, he met him because of the dating. So we're you know over several years of dating. But Harold Kruger was a gentleman that was ahead of the whole thing. But um, in the '90s, we took three different. Uh, we did uh, several different cabin datings in the 1990s, and three of them were done by Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in Woods Hole, Mass. And the calibration uh, was done out in the University of Washington, and those those um, those final reports are on the display for the public too. And so those were done. Um, they call them mass accelerator spectrometry or MAS test. You know, I think in those you only need like one two thousandths of samples. You can you don't have to destroy a big piece of an artifact to get it. And it's actually counting atoms, I guess, uh, the actual atoms themselves, according to the physicists that I talked to, rather than just measuring like with a very fancy Geiger counter the radiation. So um, it's it's more accurate. You don't have to destroy as much mass to do it. And um, so those last three were done by Woods Hole versus Geochrome Laboratories. And um, the neat thing is another type of testing come along is the optically stimulated luminescence, as I mentioned. So you don't really need charcoal. You do with carbon for You need something organic, bones, teeth, shell, wood, charcoal, you know, for carbon dating. But with a OSL dating in all you need is dirt, basically, as long as it's undisturbed in a certain depth of dirt. And dirt's everywhere, you know. So the charcoal isn't necessarily everywhere. So we would like to look at that. You know, either one of them would be great, but I think the OSL might have more, because dirt is everywhere, it might have more potential testing the walls that you were referring to earlier, you know. And even some of the chambers in what we call the main site, too, where they haven't been disturbed by anybody. Okay, and... In uh, one of the guidebooks, you, know, you said, saw at your uh, visitor center, you have reproductions of all the letters for, from the laboratories. And, you know, one of the uh, write-ups of uh, one of the sa- uh, samples uh, it says there was a charcoal taken from between wall stones of chamber XB. Uh, so, if the the charcoal was found, you know, kind of like at the base of the a built wall, uh, you know, from nearly you know, 4,000 years ago, uh, yeah, that that was where you got the date. And, and there was also, what, uh, like a hammerstone found nearby, all at the same well, level? Yeah, that was, um, well, originally that area was the north side of the chamber, I hope we're on the same page, but the north side of the chamber in ruins. Um, it's kind of a, we thought a rectangular structure. Again, we've been measuring it a little more closely and found it seems to be a trapezoidal shape. It's orientated north-south um, and basically east-west, and it has what looks like two windows, one on the north side on the wall, kind of up high, and the other one near the doorway where you enter just to the left of the doorway. And the doorway is facing south, so as you're walking into it, you walk north, and the window's on your lower left. And we just discovered in the last uh, three years we were working on that project three years ago, like, again, getting into it and really looking at it closely, and we're doing excavations, again, with the 
lady that was president of New Hampshire Archaeological Society. Now she's on the board and everything. She's been with us for almost 30 years. But we noticed that the walls, three of the walls, the corners, I should say, are actually trapped, uh, are actually corbelled. They have a slight slow, sloping inward curvature to them. It's kind of almost like an arch, but it's not quite. And it's an old technique used to bridge a distance so that when you put the roof on, it's kind of narrower at the top than it is at the bottom. You can use a smaller stone. But it's very, it's a very... Uh, good way to build a wall. It's sturdy, um, but it's actually arched in, and we didn't know that. And then we went down and looked at a chamber that's similar to it, same orientation, has a window, um, a little bit smaller, and it also seems to have a trapezoidal floor plan. Uh, with all stone roof slabs and all these chambers, by the way, you know, people uh, aren't familiar with our site, and other sites in New England are like that too. Um, but it seems to have that three wall, three corners are. Um, have that core belling. When you first enter it, it's just a straight wall, and then it goes to the first corner in front of you, and then the other two corners, and they're all core belled. But in 1967, um, they excavated looking for the remains of a pine stump, and this was this was um, photographed by Malcolm Pearson back in 1936. It was looked at by uh, William Goodwin and Roscoe Whitney, as well as Hugh Heckin from the Peabody Museum of Harvard University and others, and they said, well, um, although Patty may have built all this, this, this stump is growing through this wall, and it's so decayed we can't do dendrochronology on it. We can't tree ring date it. But by its diameter and state of decay, they all kind of agreed. It estimated it back to in the 1600s. So in the 19, 30 years later, the stump's gone, but when they got down and they excavated into that wall, they found, and we got pictures of the actually ex, extracting that root. Uh, I think it was James Whittle at the time in, the, in NERA, and his assistants were digging there, and they photographed it, fortunately, and they'd taken the root out, and it was sent to Geochrome Laboratories. The results came back. It was 1690 AD, plus or minus, I think, 50 years, if I recall. Put it back before what we call the Patty family, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of proving the Patties couldn't have built the whole thing, if you will. 1969, they continued their excavation in that area, and as they went down, uh, I think they went down through several inches of sterile soil. It's like, oh, boy, you know, we, we got nothing. And finally, they struck um, charcoal, and I guess it was kind of like a charcoal scatter, possibly from a forest fire, but it helped to date that, that layer, the stratigraphic layer there, right up against the north wall. And they also found uh, almost um, immediately, I guess, when they went just a little further down, uh, stone tools, and as you mentioned, Mark, a hammer stone, I think a stone scraper, um, and there are a couple other stone tools found in there, as as well as stone spallings. These are little flakes of stone you get when you shape stones, little flakes come off, and the technique mm-hmm. is called percussion flaking. It's like sh- shaping an arrowhead or a spear point on a much grander scale, and we can talk about that after. But um, 1970, and that charcoal was sent to Geochrome, and the results came back that that date was about 3,000 years old. Uh, 1971, they were still working on that excavation, and they found more charcoal from a different fire, and, and you know, a little bit lower layer, I think. Um, and they dated that to 4,000 years old, plus or minus about 250 years. As they got down further, they found the bedrock, finally, in the bottom of the wall. The wall was sitting on bedrock. What they noticed was that the bedrock had been quarried, below all of this excavation activity. That whole area was quarried. So the first thing that happened is the original builders came in and they lifted out the bedrock. They used it for building material, you know, roof slabs, wall stones, that kind of thing. 
and then they built the wall of the chamber in ruins. And then very gradually over time, you know, little flicks of stone were left behind, chalk was left behind, a hammer stone, a scraping stone, a uh, rubbing stone I think was found in there too. So stone tools were found in there. And then very slowly the soil builds up, and then we have another fire around 3,000 years ago, and then later, around 1690, a tree is growing through that chamber. So that's just one area of the site. I think we had 12 carbon datings, and those are three right there that we did out of the 12. Okay, and, and you know, Dennis, you know, a lot of people uh, you know, like the. Uh, you know, you've mentioned the orthostats, uh, and touched on the um, corbelled ceilings, and you know, people do talk about okay, it's, the corbelled ceilings, you know, do. Do seem to be reminiscent of um, uh, Maze Howe or uh, you know, in, in uh, uh, the Orkney Islands in Scotland or uh, New Grange in Ireland. But uh, you, you know, <laughs> you and I have also uh, spoken about um, uh, you know the megalithic yard was. Um, also used as a standard unit of measurement in uh, central uh, archaic sites in Central America. Uh, is there any evidence that uh, you know people may have moved you know, out of Mexico and you know, eventually made their way to? <clears throat> you know what's now New England. It, you know, is there any you know, like bones that that could be tested? Uh, you know, you have the same unit of measurement on both sides of the Atlantic. I, just wondering, uh, you know, what you think of that possibility? Well, yeah. Um, well, bones in New England basically, uh, due to the acidity in the soil, they usually last a few hundred years. And if you find them older, maybe they're in clay or maybe in pea or something that helps to protect them. You know, we have found some bones on our site. But I was just listening uh, to a lecture, one of the lectures at the Nero meeting, and the gentleman was doing it from, uh, oh gosh, he was a professor at a college, you know, and he was well spoken, and he spoke for about 45 minutes or so, or maybe 40 minutes or so, and answering questions and everything. He mentioned, uh, you know, the flow out of, um, <clears throat> from down south, and he mentioned that uh, he had found that the Aztec language was prevalent, not, not only in the four corner area of the United States, but also going further east, up, I think he said into the Ohio Valley. He said Aztec language was the language of traders, people that were trading goods. He said, and I was—I had never heard that before. I was—I really sat up in my chair and listened to that part of it. And he did it by uh, phone. He didn't do it by Skype, so you couldn't really talk to him. I mean, you could ask him some questions, but you couldn't get him aside later and just ask him a few more questions, you know, uh, just one-on-one -on -one kind of thing. But uh, very fascinating, and he was... <clears throat> well, you know, very well read and everything, and he, he, he does excavations and everything, so he's a hand-on archaeologist, not just an armchair. But um, he said the Aztec language is found throughout the United States, and uh, it was quite amazing to me. I, I don't know why it was, but I hadn't heard it. I guess that was the amazing part, probably. 
But I was aware, though, that the Mayans had a cultural influence <clears throat> going into Florida back when my son was uh, born around 1989. We took a trip down there and we visited the Crystal River Mounds. Um, and then we've been back there since. And the second time I was there, I could get more information. The next time you go um, and you see more, I guess, you know, and I picked up some of the books there and, and found out that they believed that because of the carvings and the rocks at Crystal River, and these pyram- these are pyramids made out of shell. They're, they're really magnificent, even after all these centuries of being weathered and, you know, um, any damage done to them because of that, or people, you know. Um, and they were up and down the western coast, and there were ones on the eastern coast of Florida. A lot of them are underneath the high-rise hotels and buildings today and under highways. But fortunately, the Crystal River Mountains are still there. And uh, they say the Maya came across it all. And they, they are the other way around. And I, I thought it was for the Mayans coming up. It could be the other way around, too. You know, them Floridians heading into Mexico, into the Yucatan. And they were exchanging goods. So after that trip to Florida, not long after that, we went down to uh, Cancun, and I visited Cobá with a family, and I asked one of the guides down there. They're excellent. And I said, do you know that they say there's a cultural influence between here and uh, the uh, Crystal River Mound and in some of the other, you know, there's many of them gone today, uh, the pyramidal mounds in Florida. And he goes, oh, yes, yes, we're well aware of that. And I said, huh. I said, I just found out about it, you know, just recently. I had no clue because they don't teach this in school. But on the last year or so, I found out that the Mayans had a cultural influence in the, uh, near Chaco Canyon. And I was giving a tour of our site, and the lady spoke out. And she goes, yeah, she goes, not only Chaco Canyon, but you go to some of the sites further north, I think towards Utah um, and into uh, Colorado up in that area, you know, Mesa Verde or even further up there, uh, the influence went up there too. So that that coming out of the south to the north, you know, I think that they've kind of proven that. Um, and if you go to California on the Colorado River, you find the uh, what they call the black geoglyphs. And anybody can Google that. And every time I show it to people at a museum or elsewhere, they're like, wow. And they, what they look like are the NASCAR lines down in Peru, and there are 130 of them on the Colorado River. Um, and around Blythe, I think there's a couple dozen. You just get further out, and you get the other, you know, 130 in total, you know. There's probably more they're going to find by drones and by satellite. I'm sure we'll find even more of these things, you know, with all that new technology. So that influence could have come out of even down in South America. Uh, potatoes and corn and squash and beans, these things came out of, you know, either South or Central America into past uh, Mexico right into the United States. Um, they made their way out of that area, too. So that influence definitely came out of there. You mentioned the uh, megalithic yard. It's 83 centimeters. And you sent me uh, some information from a professor, I think from BYU, I think it was. You mm-hmm. talked about 83 centimeters down in Kiwakiwakan, which I've been to. And when I was here with my dad, we never heard of any measuring system down there. Maybe we just weren't paying attention. But um, Poverty Point, Louisiana, Watkins Break in Louisiana, and I believe some of the ruins in Peru, and probably Chile, probably, but and elsewhere. But it's 83 centimeters, and it was multiples of that. And then I did the conversion on my phone, and it comes out to 3264. It's a megalithic yard, you know. So I had some skeptics say, well, you know, Dr. Tom's megalithic yard is almost an arm, arm's length, like our 36 inches in the imperial system. But, of course, the meter is close to that, too. It's 39, 37, but it's not based on an arm length. It's based on, what, one ten millionth of the distance from the equator to the North Pole or South Pole, almost, you know. 
So the megalithic dot can be broken down into not just that length of 32, it's broken down into a half inch, not a half inch, but a megalithic half inch, uh, make a megalithic inch, which is 140th of the uh, megalithic yard, and then a fathom is a half a megalithic yard, and then a rod is a two and a half. Well, those aren't exactly all arm lengths or finger lengths or whatever. So, you know, and I said, I don't think there's too much uh, doubt about Tom's work. But this, you know, this person was like, well, it probably could have just been a coincidence, you know. And, well, like this meter was too, you know, because that's about a 36-inch length too, you know. So I don't believe that, but... Uh, in the cubic, you know, the Egyptian cubics basically your arm, you know, from your four, from your. Uh, if you take and you wrap a cord around your arm, like rope, when I when I take an electrical cord and I'm wrapping it up around my arm or a rope, that's basically a cubic, you know. Each time it's, you know, back and forth, it's a cubic. So, which I think is based on your hand to your elbow, you know. But I don't make a lithic yard doesn't seem to be that at all, especially when it breaks down into different other units too, and it's been all proven statistically, you know. <clears throat> yeah. So yeah, there there is that suggestion of um, you know, southern migrations, and you get other uh, you know people who have said uh, it's like the, I think it was the Turner site had occipital flattening. Um, uh, you know, f- from their archaic period, and you know, it was very uh, similar to uh, other archaic uh, you know, head uh, skull uh, deformation in uh, like the in- Indian Knoll area. So you know, there's you know some you know you know we're back to the. Uh, Indications of some patterns emerging over uh, long distances, but you know, 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 your property seems more uh, uh, well known as exhibiting um, indications of people from uh, the old world. And you know, I think the the Ibex uh, petroglyph seems to be you know, some pretty convincing evidence that um, so, someone uh, came to what's now New Hampshire after seeing this uh, Ibex animal. Uh, uh, running around in the Middle East or Africa, or you know, you know where, where was indigenous to? It, it, can, can you explain it, that uh, art artwork that's found in yeah. uh, the Oracle Chamber? Yeah, uh, the Oracle Chamber. I mean, as you know, it's uh, it's one of the largest chambers still on the site, and again, the whole site's orientated true north, south, east, west for the most part. The Oracle Chamber, if you look that, down at it from above, and you could remove the roof, uh, you'd see it looks like either a Y, it's at least called it the Y Chamber. Um, so it has an east-west part of it, a corridor, if you will, and then it has the north-south. The corridor, by the way, the east-west part of it, it's all Corveld. Um, you might remember in your visit from about four years ago. And that's where the uh, 
the deer calving son. And, they, and I think Goodwin was the first one to report the deer calving. People probably saw it before that, but it's the first recorded, uh, you know, um, it was first recorded by Goodwin back around 1936 or 37. He was there in 36, and he, he started doing his research in 37. We probably can pin it down to actually, you know, uh, the year, if not a month, you know, but he's the first one to report it. It looks like um, not a deer. The antlers really don't look like a deer, as you kind of mentioned. Then, so in the 60s or even a little bit earlier, maybe they, uh, some people guessed it might be an ibex. An ibex, I thought was African. It's actually a European um, animal, and it, they're in the. They have a couple of different varieties of them, and the ibex. If you Google it, the antler I think has. It looks a little bit like ours, but then the very tip of it kind of curves. You know, it's the tip of the antler. But if you look up uh, the Spanish ibex, it looks like our looks like our ibex cotton, You know, and so Dr. Barry Fell from Harvard University. Um, he began looking at markings at our site back in 1975, and he, after studying the different markings that have been found, uh, some in the 1960s and uh, some before that, he identified Phoenician living in Celtic markings. And according to his theory that these markings originated out of Spain and Portugal where the Phoenicians uh, had gone in there, their, 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 uh, uh, the Libyans from Libya had gone up there, had the Iberians there, and you had the Celts there too. It was like a melting pot, he said, of different cultures. And they would have, eventually some of them would have been multilingual, possibly coming over on a ship to the New World using it as a stepping stone like Columbus did, you know. And so I thought they were Iberian, and um, it's almost the same latitude as our site. <clears throat> so Portugal and Spain. And um, so the Ibex seems to, when I checked that years ago, I saw the Ibex. I said, yeah, it looks a little bit like when I looked at the Spanish Ibex, it looks just like the antler on that. And again, uh, I don't know if Barry Fell made that correlation. He died in 1994. But he did look at descriptions from North America, Central, and South America, and he found Phoenician all the way from Maine all the way down to Brazil. And, again, uh, Celtic uh, across New England as far west as the Milk River in Alberta, Canada, and uh, and other Libyan markings, too, among, and then some other some other inscriptions from other cultures, too, in the New World that shouldn't really be here. In the academic community, you know, sometimes they'll say, well, hoaxes, fakes, frauds, misinterpretations, ant tracks, glacial marks, that kind of thing. Um, uh, almost any excuse, you know, to avoid really uh, trying to identify them objectively, you know. But the oceans, we think, were used as highways, not barriers. Um, and if you go back 60 years ago, the Vikings weren't legend, you know, myths or whatever, that they came to the New World in their sagas. And some people even said, well, the sagas are inaccurate or an inaccurate interpretation of them. They never came here. You know, they went to Iceland, Greenland, and that's it. Today we know they came to Canada. The latest thought that they may have been coming over 400 years now from Greenland until Greenland was abandoned due to the, the little ice age that took place uh, starting around the late 1300s. So, um, yeah, so, you know, people would say, oh, there's no explorers before Columbus. So our feeling is that people came out of Europe, the Mediterranean, and Africa into the New World. Um, and it's not conclusive. It's kind of an ongoing, um, you know, uh, research and trying to find evidence to prove it one way or the other, basically. You know, the uh, St. Brendan uh, voyage really uh, captures my imagination, too. That's a, a little off topic, but, uh, you know, but since you do bring up 
uh, other people, uh, other mariners before uh, Columbus. You know, uh, the descriptions that are in his chronicle uh, do sound very plausible that, uh, you know, this is what, 5th century Irish monk was taking the stepping stone route across the North Atlantic to um, what, uh, Newfoundland and if, you know, what you're saying is true, it's, you know, uh, Brendan uh, may have, Brendan and the Vikings may have just been following what people had known for a long time. And in Columbus, too, you know, they they say yeah. Columbus, he went to Bristol, England, he went to Galway, where Brendan, um, you know, where Brendan, I went to, and I went and visited that chapel where Columbus prayed at, you know, and it's a David Brody's new book, you'll be talking about that probably Sunday, but I was there with my dad, you know, back in 83, although it's been 35 years and a little bit of the detail, um, I still remember going to it, you know, and when I read David's book, it was interesting. Um, I'm trying to think back to the, what my dad and I witnessed at the time. Maybe my photographs will show that that chapel, I guess, and it was added on to later after St. Bennett's time. And, um, but Columbus went there, and then, you know, uh, Bristol, England, where, you know, Mariners all the world kind of came, and then into, into Ireland, and then he goes up to uh, Iceland, you know, and what would he be doing up there? Probably talking to the descendants of the Vikings who are still there today, as a matter of fact, you know, trying to find out what these legendary lands are to the West, you know. And according to one tale, it's a little different than Dave's book, just a little bit, is that they try to go to, he tries to go to Greenland, but the, uh, the little ice age is upon him, and he says, ship that covered with ice, and um, he decided that wasn't too wise to head that way, you know, it would be very dangerous, you know, he shipped and capsized, but he decided a subtlety route would be a better way to go to the to the west, you know, and that's what he did eventually. So uh, I never knew Columbus went up that to that direction whatsoever. But his wife, I guess, is uh he had a mistress and a wife or two wives and one of his wives was related to the St. Clairs, you know, of the Sir Henry St. Clair family, you know, and he may have come over into the States around thirteen ninety eight is one of the legends, you know, and that Westford Knight has what looks like a cotton of a sword, and it might be a knight on it that's been weathered so badly it's kind of hard to make out some of the detail, but the sword is like, it, it's very, it's very. I, we have a copy of it in our museum, and that part of it I don't think is questionable. I mean, it looks like a pummel sword or whatever. You can see it very distinctly, and parts of the other part of it you kind of make out, but it's kind of weathered, you know, because so, it's next to a road, the road salt gets on it for the last, I don't know how many years, but decades cause damage to it, <clears throat> but the sword, you can still see it. So all these different early pre-Columbian, you know, people coming over until the time of Columbus, you know, it's something that we're kind of interested in. On, on the other side of the uh, continent, too, coming in from the, uh, across the Pacific, too, whether it's Polynesian or Australian, there's some evidence and DNA might support that in South America. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the Chinese coming into the West Coast, you know, and certain um, pieces of artifacts like Chinese anchors, a wall that's in the uh, the Bay Area of San Francisco. There's a wall that looks really interesting. That might be a uh, Chinese uh, before Columbus. And uh, some of the animals are looking like the hairless dog and the uh, naked neck chicken. And the Spanish reported these animals on the West Coast. You know, they were some of the first Europeans in modern times to arrive there. And these animals, I believe, are from Asia. 
and not from so they didn't swim across the Pacific. Somebody must have brought them over. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. Let's. <clears throat> you know, we uh, co- cover a lot of interesting uh, uh, e- evidence, and you know, you know uh, Dennis, you've also sent. Uh, you know, some photos of you know where uh, you know you've had to uh, straighten some walls that have uh, started to uh, tilt in- inward due to you know, the tr- uh, earthquake tremors you have on the property. Um, you know there. Yeah, there, there is you know, need to straight uh, straighten the walls up to prevent further uh, damage, and you, know, you get heat, you know, for you know doing stuff like that. And saying, you know, look, they, you know, they're uh, you know just. Uh, Inventing history and either moving the stones around. Well, you know there are places like Gobekli Tepe that have braces uh, to keep the horizontal stone uh, on top of the uh, pillar to keep the T shape, and uh, maybe some of the braces are used to. Uh, keep the stone from uh, you know, maybe falling apart if there's you know, a big fissure in it. I, you know, there, are, you, know, uh, you, know, Bar- you know, Barbara has you know, photos of her, her grandfather at Stonehenge, where th- there were um, you know, su- support beams used for uh, you know, the the uh, lintel. Uh, to support the lintel stones, so you know when you undertake a project like the uh, you know, rebuilding, you know, like the west wall, uh, you did a couple years ago. What what are you trying to accomplish? With a, a project like that, um, yeah, the, the west wall of the Chamber Ruins was uh, in danger of eventually collapsing. You know, um, and there's uh, organic matter behind it on the west side of that wall. The wall runs north and south, and it was uh, slowly starting to push the wall out because of the uh, frost action settling, and you know. And then, Although we don't have the major earthquakes we do on the West Coast, we do have earthquakes or tremors here. And I asked a geolo- uh, geologist from Tufts, uh, actually from the Western Observatory in Massachusetts, and he gets on TV quite often. He visited our site. And I said, what's the difference between a quake and a tremor? It's just magnitude. They're all the same. Because, but you have them here because in the Ice Age, we had about a mile of ice, and ever since then, there's been isostatic uh, changes in the, in the Earth's level. You know, it's slowly rebounding, if you will take a mile of ice off the earth, it's going to come up like a sponge. So since the ice left sometime roughly 12,000 years ago, a little bit before that, the earth has been rebounding. 
uh, it's changed the landscape quite a bit. There are a couple of gigantic uh, bodies of water in New England going out towards New York that are not there anymore. Um, and they're just minor ponds now. And that's because the earth has changed its level. Uh, dams are broken, uh, natural earthen dams. And uh, so our, our landscape would look different than it would, you know, after the time of the glaciers or even 4,000 years ago. And that causes damage to the chambers. Uh, any ancient site in the world, like you mentioned, go back with Kepi, I guess that's uh, about 11,600 years old. They're going to suffer damage both natural and man-made. Um, so our attempt is to basically, we do preventative maintenance on the site. Um, if we see something that could, you know, result in the chamber failing, well, we don't want it to hurt our visitors, and we don't want the chamber to, you know, fall down. So we do have to do some of that at the site. It's kind of an ongoing, slow process. That was a little bit bigger um, uh, project we did. It took uh, many, many weeks, and I had a couple of really nice people helping, including that archaeologist. She she uh, did all the sifting of the soil that came out of the uh, excavations as we went down to do the well restoration, and then we did measuring and you know finding the uh, the plan of the well the structure looking more trapezoidal kind of a trapezoidal shape and then the core belling and everything those are kind of results of that. Um, but it's been going on since 1937 when Mr. Gooden purchased the site, and his basic thing was. Um, to any rock that was within three, within three feet of a, of a structure to put it back on top and to sift the soil, look for artifacts. It was, again, for restoration, and eventually, you know, we picked up, you know, the maintaining of the site. He died in 1950. I got involved with it in the mid-50s, and it's always been kind of an ongoing thing. But if you look at Newgrange in Ireland and you look at pictures from the 19, early 60s, I was there in 1983, but you look at them, and you're looking at two different structures almost, you know, or now felt, which are in the same area. Um, I've been to Athens, to the Parthenon, and that's been restored. But I haven't been to Egypt, but I've been to a lot of other places over there. But Egypt, the Sphinx, for instance, is another one that's undergone a lot of restoration, you know. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, Mark, even in Ohio, some of the 10,000 uh, mounds, a couple of them uh, have been I believe you said you named them too. Have been basically completely rebuilt, you know. From oh, the, like the site mound and Mound City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. And you know, during the near near meeting this weekend, um, they, uh, as part of my presentation, and Doug Swartz, here's a wonderful help. He's the vice president of NIR. He had a. Uh, quite a few photographs, and what he did is he showed them to the audience, and he goes, uh, anyone want to guess where this picture was taken? And one of them was of Pueblo Benito at Chaco Canyon, and almost everybody just stared at it. They couldn't quite place it. They, I think a few of them almost guessed what it was. And, you know, the big D-shaped, you know, structure at Pueblo Benito at Chaco Canyon, I mean, that's, you know, it's amazing. When you look at the first photographs taken, it's, like, almost unrecognizable, and today it's like, holy cow, uh, the National Park System did that. And then he showed some in Cal and, you know, down in uh, either, yeah, Mexico. He showed, I think, some in Honduras, some in the Mayan ruins. Um, he might have shown Chihuahua Chihuacan. I've been there, too. Um, but he showed some of them, and people had a hard time figuring what they were looking at because of the amount of restoration work. And the point is, a lot of them, a lot of criticism on our side is, oh, look, you guys have, uh, you know, when Goodwin dug it out, and then he did some restoration work on it, some modifications, you know, um, and, but the good one tried to keep it the original 
plan, you know, as much as possible. He wasn't up there to make things that some people accused him of. And the reason we know that is because we have his, he wrote three books. Uh, there's pictures in his books, but Malcolm Pearson, who showed you in the site in 1936, was a professional photographer. So we have photographs from the very first day and visit there. We have photographs of the site from 1935 before they visited. Uh, they were in, like, the Havel Gazette uh, newspaper. Um, and I also have four 1920 photographs with dates on them of the site, different different shots of different areas. And then one from, we believe, it's around 1915 or 1916, so well before the time of Mr. Goodwin. So the point is some people thought Goodwin built a lot of the site, really changed it. But if you look at the old photographs, and that was one of our objectives, is show people that not only does it happen at our site, which we get a lot of criticism for, but it happens at Stonehenge, you know. It has happens at mounds, and then it happens out in some of the, uh, the kivas and some of the structures in the southwest in the Four Corners area, you know, or over in Europe or even in the you know, Middle East, you know. These sites do get, they do get rebuilt in some cases. And I've been to um, uh, Chicken Itza down in Mexico, and they showed some pictures of that too. A lot of that's been restored, you know. You first look at it, you can hardly recognize it. And if now, when they get the jungle off it and they restack a lot of the stones and everything, it's like, oh, it didn't quite look like that when the first researchers began their work on a site, you know. So, but, you know, you know, you, that's one of your things about how some of the criticism about our site, you know, being, you know, built and maybe it's fabricated and all that stuff, but that's not true. Okay. And uh, <laughs> uh, one of the things that, uh, really couldn't be uh, fabricated is the uh, probably fr- frequently overlooked uh, drains on the site. Can, can you explain those? Yeah, actually, whoever built the site engineered a whole network of uh, we call them storm drains. They're actually uh, first it starts with a channel dug through the bedrock, and the channel can be like three or four inches wide and maybe an inch or so deep, and they run uh, throughout the bedrock and quite often across the uh, kind of the grain of the rock, if you will. And then what it does is it runs several feet, and it goes to an underground drain, and the underground part of it is basically two parallel walls that these people build, and then they put capstones, like almost building a mini miniature chamber. And the longest one is about 75 feet long, and I think the shortest one might be about... Uh, maybe a dozen feet long. And I think there's about 12 of them on the site. Uh, there could be others we haven't found yet. But these really keep the bedrock dry. And 4,000 years ago, we believe the hilltop, from all the shovel test pits, a study went on from 91 to 1997 uh, by that same person, that the, the person that was president of the Hampshire Archaeological Society. After she got off the North Stone, she began doing these STPs or shovel test pits. Basically, it's a, a square hole about 50 centimeters across to go down to it, they, either bedrock or what they call a preoccupational level where no, no human activity would take place below this level from what they can tell, you know, maybe hit glacial soil or something like that or sand. Or <clears throat> anyway, they uh, did uh, something close to like 80 of them across the hilltop, and her husband was a doctor of geology at Tufts University for 30 years, so she had a you know, really good resource in him about the geology. And she was looking for both geological and archaeological data. And what she said at the end of that was uh, basically, ge- geologically speaking, the hilltop was probably 75% bare, 25% covered with glacial soils and clay. Uh, and then later on, windblown soil came in, vegetation decay. You have about an inch every century of soil buildup after that, but it's not linear. It, you know, it, 
it's very, very slow at first, and then you have more and more forest, and it, it accelerates a little bit. But at the same time on the hill, we have erosion, <clears throat> a lot of, you know, uh, washing off the top of the hill from storms and when the snow melts and everything. So whoever built this site realized that the bedrock would not drain very well. They didn't have soil there to absorb the water or vegetation, so what they did is they uh, created that whole network, and it works pretty well today. Um, we haven't examined every... Um, every drain, you know, and it would kind of need to send a little robot into them if you could because some of them have silt in them because the ones they have looked at, they have found stone tools and other types of artifacts in these drains. They do collect things like at home when things fall into your sink, you know. So an interesting thing about that, too, is when Goodwin first got there and began cleaning the site, within a short time they found these drains. They had blocks of stone blocking them like plugs, almost like somebody shut the site down, winterized it, and went away and never came back. Okay. And you have other pieces of evidence about this abandoning the site. We probably need to talk about that. Do, do you know when this could have happened? Why? It, it, it just you know, you know, we've discussed that. Like, why would people just all of a sudden just stop what they're doing and depart the area? So that's uh, <clears throat> excuse me, my my voice got a little sore. I apologize. Um, yeah, we don't know. Um, we do have uh, the earliest carbon dating is going back, and it looks like a fire pit up near the North Stone. It doesn't date the wall or the North Stone itself, but it's in that area. And that dated uh, to about 7,400 years old. So we have some sort of human activity, we think, building a campfire of some type um, on the hills. So that was very important to us. It's middle archaic time period. Um, so maybe as early as almost 7,500 years ago, people were up there. And then... When the site was built, we think around 4,000 years ago, because that's when the earliest carbon dating of the main site was. The main site, again, is a one-acre area surrounded by that chain-link fence, uh, and that dated to 4,000 years. Um, and the astronomical alignments worked 4,000 years, plus or minus a few hundred years. Um, so when was the site abandoned is a great question. Um, we have found uh, these big slabs of stone that would become probably roof slabs, um, and you can see them in the Oracle Chamber and the other structures, too. There's a very big lodge and several ton stones that were used on the roofs. Um, in 1982, uh, one, of our, one of our workers uh, was sitting on a rock out having a picnic lunch, uh, you know, during lunchtime. And she and the rest of the staff had been advised by one of our researchers, Dr. David Stewart-Smith, to look for stones that might have a little bit of shaping to it, or dressing, we call it. It's actually like a serrated edge on the stone where somebody, on the slabs, where somebody may have been striking it with a hammer stone, shaping the stone, and what will leave behind is kind of that serrated edge. And sure enough, she was sitting on the stone, and she also noticed it was kind of popped from the bedrock, you know, and there was a lot of dirt covering this, but you could tell the rock came up, you know, from where it would have been originally. She looked under it, and there was a cropping stone. The stone's about a foot across was artificially stuck under there after the stone was separated from the bedrock and raised. They actually propped it up. And this would give them a better angle to slam the edge of it with a hammer stone and a technique called percussion flaking. 
So uh, when she found that, she reported that to um, to David. And the next year, he did an excavation at, in the front edge of that stone. And when they get down to the bedrock, they found all the little pieces of stone that had been struck off the front surface. Overseeing this was Dr. Gary Hume, the state archaeologist. And he said it's unmistakable that uh, this percussion flaking technique was used on the stone in much the same way as an arrowhead would be shaped. So it's a Stone Age technology. But we have found, just in the last few years, we found probably, uh, we hadn't known of a few of them like that one. We found a few more in the 80s, a few more in the 90s. But more recently, we found many. And I think the number right now we have is about 33. And they're located all over the hilltop, some up to 1,000 feet from the main site. Some are just, uh, you know, four or five feet across, and some are, you know, double or triple that length, uh, weighing, you know, up to a couple tons, and they're all propped up, you know. So it's not like they're just sitting on the ground and nature could have done. These have been unofficially. And the bedrock is uh, nice or schist. It does come up in, in layers. They call it foliation. It does come up. So you have to know how to break the stone away from its bedrock uh, without shattering it, you know. So these guys are pretty good at that. So they'd work a fissure or crack in the bedrock, and somehow they were able to separate these big layers in the size and shape, kind of what they want, and then they would do this hammer stoning on it to get a final shape to it. Our thought is they're going to bring these up to the main site, perhaps, because they have a roof. Most of them look like roof slabs. I think they had a bigger plan for our site. We thought maybe for many years the site was complete and eventually abandoned, you know, but now we're thinking that maybe they had a bigger plan for the site and they just never came back. And where did they go and what happened to them? We don't know, but you know, Mike, you know, you do a lot of reading, you're well-read and everything. I mean, wherever you go in the world, it seems like whether it's the Mayans, although the Mayan people still exist today, a lot of the cities were abandoned, you know, uh, in North America, Central, South America, or even over the old world. Uh, some of these sites are like, what happened to the people, you know, even Stonehenge, where did the people go, you know, that used some of the 50,000 megalithic sites in Europe, you know, they were abandoned at some point, you know. Um, and I bring up at this time that megalithic sites aren't just in Europe. I think they're on six continents out of seven. And these, and the same thing happens. And they were building these sites, and then the people eventually disappear from them. But in our case, it looks like they were still going to build it bigger. That was kind of like, oh, that's interesting, you know. But they didn't. <laughs> yeah, and you, know, you do get some of the archaic um, cultural uh, traditions of site avoidance, like, maybe, like something bad happened there and you know, they just uh, just stopped using it as a ceremonial site. That's uh, uh, you know, a, a reason. Uh, well, you had the, seems like a major flood around the Poverty Point area that uh, no longer made it accessible by boat, and it just fell out of uh, disuse. Right, and I've heard also that's that's that that one. That's interesting. Yeah, and then the other times I think they've seen by they can look at pollen samples and so forth and see there was a really bad drought, and so after a few years of that. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe longer, you know. People started getting very discouraged and very upset that uh, they weren't getting the rain, the crops were failing, and then, you know, whether it's like Cahokia, or, you know, mounds in Illinois, which is an amazing site. America, they call it America's Windhenge. I was just watching a story on that recently. It's like, where did the people go? Why did they leave here? There might have been up to 50,000 people possibly supporting that place, you know, from a distance around there, you know, and then the ones that live there. 
But, uh, you know, where do they go? Why, and one of the thoughts I heard on that particular site is people might have migrated up to Wisconsin and started all over again, you know, at the Asaplan uh, Mounds. But why would they abandon something they built that was so incredibly uh, labor-intensive, you know, and to move away from there, to do it all over again a few hundred miles to up, up north, perhaps, you know. So with our site, and there are other New England sites, and Greater New England, actually probably about 800 sites they've located. Uh, some of these may be related to our site in our time period from, uh, uh, say, eastern part of Canada and Quebec, all the way down to New England, New York, Pennsylvania. Um, and But I mentioned out in eastern Colorado they're finding several of the same features out there, which is quite interesting. Um, and I think Dr. Little was talking about a 40-square-mile area of Alabama with these gigantic stone mounds instead of earthen mounds, stone mounds with standing stones. You mentioned a couple of what we would call uh, men here, and I think he called them obelisk, which either way, you know, big, tall stone. But he mm-hmm. mentioned his uh, rattlesnake walls, and I'm like, oh, rattlesnake walls. I think he's talking about what we call serpent walls, just, you know, just a different word used. And I'm thinking... I got to take a. I got to get some pictures of that. See how they relate to ours in the in the northeast, or even the ones in Colorado, because this seems to be quite spread out, you know, across across the vast, you know, area. Mr. Goodwin's time in the 1930s, he knew of about, and he lived in. Yeah, he, during the 1940s, he wrote the book, and that's where he lists 15 sites that he knew of in the northeast, 15, and just New England, you know, not realizing they were outside of New England, and that then they actually be hundreds and hundreds of these sites. And there are some that look similar, some of the features as far west as Colorado and down in Alabama. So maybe there, maybe other states have these things we just haven't heard of too. Right. And, you know, you were talking about the uh, this ceremonial center was you know, <laughs> what poised to be expanded into uh, an e- e- even greater uh center i you know who know uh, you know there was a lot of quarrying going on and they you know it, it, it seemed like they they had a plan but um do do you have a- any uh plans to um Acquire any more property in the hopes of finding, you know, something else associated with the, the site. You know, what 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 are your plans for the property? Yeah, I mean, we have about a, almost 110 acres, um, and when my dad got involved, I think there were, were I'm going to say 20 acres. I think that. Uh, Mr. Goodwin purchased, and it went to Malcolm Pearson when Mr. Goodwin died. And then my dad um, opened the site up in 1958, and he leased the property from Malcolm for, I think, a three-year period, and then he had it on a yearly period for another two years. So uh, I think it was by 1963 he raised enough capital to purchase that, and then he began uh, buying more land because he knew the hill was not just 20 acres. He knew the entire hill might be... He knew of the walls out there, you know, because um, there's a couple of satellite, like the uh, watch house chamber that's located, you know, 400 feet from the main site and a couple other features up there. But he wanted to protect the entire hill, and it was a good thing because if homes had gone up, 
instead of watching the sunset over the winter solstice monolith, which is pretty spectacular when you watch it, um, you'd be looking at a house there, you know, or the summer or whatever. So, And then he actually went out and he bought the what we called the, at the time the Indian Cliff or Native American Cliff uh, Shelter, and that's where we found pottery in 1958 that dated to uh, uh, Middle Woodland period, around 2,500 years perhaps, maybe a little uh, towards between 2,000 and 2,500 years. In the 1990s, uh, during one of those shovel test pits, they found uh, a wigwam site down by a parking lot. It was about 30 feet across, post moles, uh, you know, because the wood that supported the structure actually rotted in the ground and left a big ring. And in that, they found two fire pits, and they actually found grease still in the soil that hadn't decomposed after. Um, well, but one carbon dating said 2,000 years old from the fire pit, and the other fire pit was 1,700 years old. On the other side of the parking lot, about 150 feet away, maybe, they found a uh, drying rack, two more post moles, and a fire pit. And they had run out of money to do the carbon dating on that fire pit, so the charcoal, I think, is still sitting there for 20 years, you know. Um, and that was, again, done by, uh, she was, a, you know, president of the Hampshire Archaeological Society at the time. So that was probably uh, a winter camp there, sheltered from the hill. And on the other side, we have the summer camp where the Native Americans would go underneath. But this is about 2,000 years after the site was built. Um, I know the Native Americans were right around the whole site. You know, what involvement did they have with the site? How much? How little? We really don't know the story at all, you know. Um, but as far as buying any more land, um, I mean, it would be really nice, but the land, you know, my dad got up to about 110 acres. Uh, uh, there's there's um, homes all around it. We bought two acres in 1985, put a house up in 86, and my son lives next to us on two more acres. This land abuts this property. So we're protecting that with our homes, too, I guess. But on the other side is uh, the development. They're really nice homes kind of around here, you know, like two acres of land each. But on the other side, there's a farm, and that's just recently been 60 acres, I believe, has been cut just about in half, and they're subdividing that into homes. That's on the opposite side from us. I don't know what's going to happen next to us. Uh, we'd love to have the farm there and do a B&B or something like that where, you know, people could come and stay, you know, and have the historical part of it, you know. But uh, it's a little beyond our financial means. So um, right now we've got all we can handle. <clears throat> but uh, the problem is uh, throughout the Northeast, a few of these chambers have been destroyed recently. Our site, you know, is, is protected by us for, you know, 60 years now. And before that, Malcolm, before that good one. Um, <clears throat> and... Uh, it's the other sites in New England and, and elsewhere, outside of New England, you have to kind of worry about, you know. And uh, hopefully ours will always remain the way it is, you know. And we are a state historic site. We made that in 1970, but the state doesn't own it nor control it. Uh, we pay our taxes like everybody. We're not, you know, we don't receive tax. We pay tax money. We depend on people visiting us to keep the place going after you know, 60 years. I had to work full-time as an airline pilot. I did that for 35 years. My dad was an AT&T engineer for 30 years. My son's an engineer. I'm surrounded with engineers. But uh, anyway, so, yeah, I, I hope the other sites around will be. There have been a couple of them that have been given to the town by some builders recently, one in Danville, New Hampshire, one in Raymond, New Hampshire. That good one actually worked on, the one up in Raymond. Um, so we're hoping more that will happen, even if it's like a half an acre, just to protect the site, you know. That would be nice. You know, they build with homes up, but if they can protect that particular structure from the bulldozer, that would be kind of nice, you know. So, right. And, and uh, you know, speaking of, you know, you are a uh, private business. If you know people want to learn more about uh, 
you know, your opening times and see the photos of the alpacas and everything else you have going on at, uh, you know, the location. Uh, you know, you have a website, uh, StonehengeUSA.com, that people can mm-hmm. visit. And you also have a new uh, app that you have available. Uh, do you want to describe that? Yeah, you're right, Michael. You have a website. We've had that for over 20 years. And you're right, StonehengeUSA.com. And if you send us messages, we, there's an email address there and a phone number, too. Um, we have a Facebook page, too, and I think we have almost 9,000 followers that people want to Facebook us. Um, and then we have links on there to, like, Nearer, that group, research group, and then other places that, you know, are in, doing kind of like ancient sites, you know, different sites like that. Um, but, yeah, we did a new app starting um, in June and on Android or Apple, and you can download it. It's America Stonehenge. It's America's, not American. It's possibly, yes, people put American in there. It doesn't work, but America Stonehenge, and um, it has both um, audio, it has uh, pictures, and it has text. And you can actually do, you know, a virtual tour sort of in your easy your easy or a lazy boy chair uh, anywhere in the world. And we had a company, uh, organization, I should say, came up and did 360 shots of our site back, I think about two or three months ago. They did a really nice job. And those 360s inside the chambers and outside um, will eventually go on to that app. But the app, people say right now, the software will have to be changed, which is an ongoing process. And so the future looks good on that maybe in a year or so. Uh, we're ready to load it on there. It's just when that you know, when they have it ready for us. So you can all, not only just take, you know, regular, it's good. We got a lot of really nice photographs that you'll be able to screen and then do 360 and, you know, look all around inside the Oracle Chamber or some of the other structures and maybe the alpacas, you know, and stuff like that. You're able to, and then probably you can do a museum too, you know, be able to look around inside that and see the, you know, some of the displays we have in there, dioramas and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's something new. Right? We decided everybody seems to like it. So uh, it's working out pretty well so far. Okay. And uh, uh, next month, you know, of course, you have the uh, winter solstice. Uh, but is there anything coming up between you know, today and the winter solstice, and in, 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 in like the uh, you know, cross quarter day or you know, something like that. Uh, you know, one of the meteor showers. Uh, do, do you have like a special event going on? Um, uh, actually, just we just uh, had the uh, the cross quarter day. You know, um, it's actually uh, in today's calendar they moved them all to like uh, the cross quarter days or the mid season days, so like August first, November first, you know, February first. Um, and, yeah, which one am I missing? I think I hit them all. February. Yeah. So these, but in ancient times, they're actually a few days later, you know. And with the US tilt, so you actually have to watch our cross quarter day, like November first. You have to actually go over around November seventh to make it work. Not only due to the US tilt, but they actually celebrated a little bit later. Mine calendars, I guess, they moved it to the first of each month to make it kind of nice, you know. Uh, some of our holidays have done that too, and I. I think, uh, I was just thinking Columbus Day, was it Columbus? Somebody's going to move one of the holidays around so it's on the first. I'm trying to think. They're actually trying to change a law on that for convenience sake, so it, I forget how they want to do it. But 
So anyway, uh, yeah, December 21st or 20th, I think it is, will be the uh, winter solstice. And 50 years ago, we had um, 1967 started clearing out that winter solstice sunset alignment, but the weather um, did not cooperate on that day back in 67. So 50 years ago, on December, we went up and looked at it. Same thing, the weather was bad for a couple of days because you could come either a couple of days on either side of it, it worked fine. And then in 69, the same thing. But 1970, we're getting pretty close to our 50th anniversary where we actually watched, uh, four of us went up there, and we actually watched the sunset. I was there that day. I was probably about 16 years old. And my dad and one of our young assistant managers and my neighbor, we all went up there. It was about a foot of snow we had to get through to get up there. And that's the picture in the front of my dad's book. And my dad made a painting of that. And when it happened, we said, we're probably the first people. It's kind of a neat, you know, chills went over. It's like, we might be the first people watching this, you know, for perhaps thousands of years, you know. Uh, it was pretty cool. And so uh, and I guess in two years we'll have to celebrate that 50th, uh, that particular 50th anniversary. Okay. And um, you know, uh, what <clears throat> is a cross-quarter date? You know, like, it, it, was it, uh, you know, uh semi-serious uh holiday that uh, you know if if it's recorded you know uh, you know what did did other cultures uh do for you know, these types of holidays so we have the uh, the four seasons everybody knows about but the uh, cross quarter days or the mid season days of the actually it was said like the mid season they're between those um seasons actually and it divides the year into like you know at least eight parts um so the next one next cross after winter solstice the next cross quarter day will be february and it was called in by the uh celts and it's right around you know groundhog's day as well as candlemas and it's actually and it'll sound funny to some people it was actually supposed to be the end of winter you wouldn't know that up here in new england that's for sure but it's supposed to be the beginning of spring (laughs) And then March uh, 20th would be mid-spring, and we call it the first day of spring, but it would be the mid-spring. And then the end of spring would be May Day. And by the ancient Celts, it was Beltane or Bieltana, the fires of Beltane. Um, and that was beginning beginning of summer. And then by the time you get to June, you'd have the uh, June 20th or 21st thing in the year. It would be the uh, summer solstice, but they call it the midsummer, not the first day of summer, but the midsummer solstice. And they had a, a Gaelic name for that. And then it went to August 1st, which is called Lamas, and there's uh, Loch Master or something like that. There's a couple of different pronunciations. But the end of summer, the beginning of fall, getting ready to harvest the crops. By September, you had the equinox or the mid-equinox, and then you get to November 1st, which is the day after Halloween, All Saints Day or All Souls Day, and it's called uh, Samhain. It looks like Samhain, but Samhain. Now, now you're getting back to the beginning of winter, and the end of fall, and, you know, they should have had the harvest by then, and then you're into the winter solstice, midwinter solstice as it's been. So that causes a little confusion among people, but that's what these cross-quarter, and they're actually celebrated uh, in a bigger way than the seasons were by the ancient Celts. I visited Mesa Verde in 1990. When I got out there, they have astronomical alignments, and I was quite surprised that they had the cross-quarter days because I had read up on it a little bit before I got out there, and I didn't realize that. And I got there, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. They were celebrating it. And I guess it would make sense to some people, you know, uh, dividing year into smaller parts, you know. Or it could be where people were sharing ideas, too, across the landscape, you know. Those, those, are, those are some of the arguments, you know, whether 
many things are exchanged between people, so it's just independent invention, you know. But Cahokia Mound State Park, you know, in Illinois, that also has uh, a wooden circle, much like the one near Stonehenge called Woodhenge. And so it's called America's mm-hmm. Woodhenge. And there are 120 pyramids there at Cahokia. And I was there in 1991, I think. It's an amazing place. But that had um, the cross quarter and quarter. Um, some of the sites, as you know, Mark, uh, like I think um, Newark Bounds in Ohio are kind of geared more towards the lunar alignments, you know, the lunar right. standstills. But our site seems to have everything. It's got the mid-season, it's got the season, it's got the lunar minors and lunar majors, which the next one comes up, I believe, in 2024, although I saw a show tonight on PBS that said 2025, so i got to get down and get the actual date on that. But every 18 and a half years, we have the lunar minors, and uh, and nine years later, we have the majors, and so it's an 18 and a half year total cycle. Um, so it's either the end of 24, beginning of 25. We hope to open up our forest. One of the things we want to do is do forest management up there, harvest the forest. We talked to the University of New Hampshire Forest Extension Service. They've been there a couple times, and they kind of point out we should go to the uh, get a licensed forester. And the next step is to get a um, a good logging company that will be under who foresters, um, you know, who'll be supervising it, and they'll remove uh, a lot of the trees on the alignment so you can see the alignments better. But we have never opened up the lunar major standstills north and south. They've never been open in 50 over 50 years, so that will be something new. And we should have it done next winter when the ground's frozen. Come up there and they do quite a nice job. They uh, they did a part of Stonington, Connecticut was done, I guess, uh, North Stonington. And uh, some of the members from here have seen what they did, and they, right next to some of the chambers and walls and standing stones, and they did a, a magnificent job. Uh, it came out looking beautiful. And what you don't want is trees falling on your structures. You don't want trees falling on the walls, the cons, or any of that, plus the uprooting part of it. When the tree uproots, it can cause heavy damage to some of these structures too. So that's part of our intent is to uh, make the forest healthier. Um, we were told that years ago to thin it out, and also the animals love it better. So it's it's good on all accounts, and it will be kind of a fire reduction thing, too, with all the fires like out in California. It helps to reduce the fuel. It's called the fuel reduction thing, too. But it will be a healthy forest, and you'll be able to see the alignments. You'll be able to see the wall patterns, the serpentine walls. You send the drone up now, and you can see it okay. You know, we've had uh, a gentleman that's from uh, the West Coast. He's moved out here, and he's got very expensive equipment he's been using. He travels all over the world with it, but he's been doing a uh, really nice work for us. I mean, he has a thermal imaging camera that's about 13000 He's got a new piece of equipment he's going to be bringing down shortly once all the leaves are off the trees, and he has a high-definition color. And he puts all these images together, with a, and the computer software is kind of expensive to rent. You have to rent it, I guess, by the month. Uh, according to him, it's like, you know, whatever, is it several hundred dollars a month or something? But anyway, you rent that, and he puts it through there, and then you come up with a 3D, 3D image by combining all the pictures, a really nice 3D map about one square mile of our hilltop. And you sit under ideal conditions. You can see about 18 inches into the soil. So if there's anything hidden underneath the ground, any kind of, you know, maybe kind of lodge features that we can't see when you're just walking around, they may show up with this, uh, you know, using this, um, you know, his, his uh, aerial images, you know. Okay. Um, Des, you know, you've been going into a lot of detail about all the uh, cross-quarter days and equinoxes and solstices are all built into 
um, you know, the positioning of the stones all across the hilltop uh, it seems pretty obvious that um, you know, your your property served as a calendar it is you know there are any other kind of uh, you know, reason why this uh, ceremonial site was built there. You know, uh, you know, was you know, were there homes built around it? You know, was it also a, a village? You know, what was the purpose of the site? Well, the site we think is not a uh, you know not a habitat site. We think it's where people. It's on a hill, kind of higher up to the heavens, and God. Or gods, um, like a lot of the megalithic sites in Europe, you know, and, and as I mentioned, they go on six out of seven continents, you know. Um, There's like a hundred thousand in, in Korea alone, you know. But they see a lot of them seem to be built um, sometimes near waterways, you know, near streams, brooks, that kind of thing, or, or near the Spicket River on one side. And the Merrimack River is only a couple miles from here, where you can navigate from the ocean right up to about four miles. We've heard a criticism: Well, you're so far from the ocean that if somebody crossed the ocean and went 2,500 miles or further um, to our to our shores, they'd only be 20 miles from our site. But if you follow the Merrimack River up, you're coming within about four miles of our site. 4,000 years ago, between here and the Merrimack, swamps and water and everything, probably, we've had maps drawn up, and the gentleman that was doing it was from Harvard University, and he was kind of uh, collaborating a little while. He was talking to the people at the USGS uh, in New Hampshire, which covers New Hampshire and Vermont, and talking about water levels going back in time and getting as much information as he could from, you know, from, from these people up there. And it looks like you could come about a mile or two from the site by water if you're an ocean-going, you know, people. And we know Native Americans use the waters for, for highways, too, you know. Um, so, the, you know, the question is why would they choose our particular hill? It does have an earthquake fault line running through it. Um, if you go back to the old world, um, 600 or roughly 600 stone circles in Wales made by ancient man in England are located on or near a fault line. Um, it's just a repeating pattern over there. Over here, we find a lot of our New England site, you know, uh, chambers are located near faults also. Ours is visible. You can actually see the whole thing. The whole, earth, the whole hill has been cracked in half. And it's a branch of the uh, Clinton-Newbury fault line that runs off the coast of, of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and I believe it swings right down into Connecticut. It's a dormant kind of, but even though it's dormant, uh, it's been dormant for a long time, it still gets moved uh, when we have earthquakes. Um, they actually took advantage of that crack through the entire hill to actually remove some of the bedrock slabs for building purposes. One of them is a 14-ton roof slab that came from, you can see where it came out of, right next to the fault. Um, and the hills around our site are about a half a degree above, a little bit higher, about a half a degree. And it makes for a nice sunrise and sunset, moonrise and moonset. And uh, as opposed to when you're looking at something flat like the ocean, you look at the sun, it's beautiful, but it's very big and distorted. Uh, or the moon, you know, you, they're very beautiful. But this makes them, a little, when they're about a half a degree up above the horizon or before sunset or before at just after sunrise, they're sharper, smaller, and you have a more accurate alignment. Plus, stars also, they, 
only a couple stars that can actually rise or set on the horizon due to the atmosphere absorbing the sunlight. They call it extinction. So if you have a little bit of an uplook, you can see a star, more stars actually touch the horizon. There's only a couple of them that can do it, even with a half a degree uplook. But you could actually watch it. There's a part of that Hobbit's Smithsonian report said in 1978 when we get it back was uh, about when the stones were erected. But it also said you have uh, 24 star alignments. And that's something they didn't identify with us. And we still have to do further research on that because uh, I think that's exciting. You know, if we can get more, you know, somebody in there that really wants to get involved with the astronomy again, um, you know, maybe we can find out what some of these other standing stones are up there. You know, we have a couple of them. We haven't identified what they're, what they're pointed towards, you know. But that report said you have about 24 star alignments. We knew it was the North Star, so that's one of them. So 23 more, actually. Uh, well, you future, know, Dennis, <clears throat> for, for those people that, that don't know what you've got there, it's really it's an amazing site. You've got chambers, you've got stone alignments, you've got walls, you've got you know so many different um, different uh, exhibits, so to speak, and. So many people, um, you know, you, they hear American Stonehenge, and they, they all they can think of is the one in England. And what you have there is so much more. Plus, you've got an amazing visitor center. But it's a very, it's a small area, but there's so much packed into it. It's it's mm-hmm. absolutely worth the time and the energy to go see because it's an educational experience beyond anything well, I can imagine. I can't imagine anything mm-hmm. else in this country. Well, maybe maybe Serpent Mound and stuff like that, but but mm. where you can walk through and you can see and you can go through these chambers in some places and get a feeling for what it must have been like to to be back two thousand, three thousand, five thousand years when when this was home. I mean, I realize it wasn't home for people, but in many cases, it was something that was very familiar to people, even even if it was just ceremonial, and to feel the the intensity and the energy that went into the building and the creation of this and then the utilization of it for so very very, very many years until um until they went away no that, that's a and great it, uh, that's a that's a wonderful thing you know the, the kind of description of it um and I think it's kind of like I say it's kind of like a to think of this now it's more like a reader's digest kind of a thing on our 110 acres you know you look at a place like Stonington with 35,000 acres and these things are just all over that 8,000 features and then stretching across you know Benji Womp in Connecticut which we're not really sure if that site's a little bit newer you know more later but it has some interesting features a couple of chambers that look like ours but all over the landscape these in, in Putnam County and Westchester County New York have over 200 down on near the Hudson River area Oh, but, yeah. Um, our site's compact, you know, you, you know, like in 110 acres we have. I, and that was brought to my attention by other people going, you know, you've got pretty much everything here. On a, You know, it's all kind of close together. You go elsewhere around the northeast, you have these same features that are spread out over the landscape, you know, which is, and that's still pretty oh, yeah. cool. But you do a little bit more walking to get to some of these, you know, especially like North Stonington, which to me is an amazing place, but spread out, you know. Well, Gunjiwamp, you have to have hiking shoes. And... It's it is a labor of love to to trek through that area. I know that um, I was just praying for a trail, and there wasn't one. And and I, there may be now. It, it was you know going back ten years or so, but it was it was a laborious 
um, hike to get to get to all of the places at, at Gunjiwam, and at your at your site, it's it's good for older people, it's good for children, it's good for it's good for any age group, and it's educational. I mean, uh, kids don't so much, get yeah. to see stuff like this. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 we go for the ice age right up to the historic. You know, we talk about all those. Yeah. You know, these are the, and then recently we got a six-inch wood chipper, so we covered all the trails with all the... I burned mostly firewood, but the junk, I threw into the wood chipper, you know, and we had an old wood chipper before, but I covered every trail with bark mulch, and it does... It looks not only nice, and it's nice to walk on, but it keeps away the little, uh, little uh, you know, any kind of uh, insects and those bad, uh, you know, ticks. It's supposed to be good for all of that, you know, for wild, all that wildlife. That, yeah. You know. But we do have a lot of nice wildlife up here. You have deer and turkeys and, you know, red-tailed hawks and, and all of that, so... You get to see all of that and bunny rabbits everywhere and squirrels and chipmunks. They love the area up there, so it's kind of a wildlife. And we have the alpacas, too, you know. We have five alpacas on display. and You know, that that thing, too, the alpacas are part of the, uh, you know, their ancestors were indigenous to North America for about 45 million years. So we discussed that, too, you know. They were about the size of a bunny rabbit. And then they lived here for 45 million years up to about maybe 8,000 years ago. They found some more remains in California. But, um uh, excuse me, Mesa, Arizona, in a Walmart parking lot that dated to about 8,000 years. So their ancestors were here, and then they migrated through Alaska, Bering Strait, and down through Panama about two or three million years ago. But people go, oh, yeah, they're, they're from over there. I'm like, no, actually, they were here. And then they migrated, and then they became extinct here. So these guys' ancestors are actually from our continent, Canada, U.S., and I guess part of Mexico, you know. They're from, you know, and that brings up a whole thing about, you know, what animals were here in the past, you know, going back. So that's kind of part of our history too. And I remember mm. when when mm. we did go, you actually had um, an Indian mm. sacred circle there as well. Is that still there? Yeah, uh, we've had. Yeah, I've tried. If it's the one, uh, so, you know, we have the one where Taj when she does her celebration, she'll be up for the winter solstice. We'll be open for that. If the weather's good, mm-hmm. she'll definitely be here. She's from Petersham, Mass. And she actually has some chambers in her backyard. My dad even uh, used to have pictures of those in. 1960s when we went to some of the near meetings back then. I remember seeing slides on, you know, different sites, and that was one site. Those were in their backyard. But, um, you know, we've had different Native Americans, um, uh, even uh, from, from Mexico. A Mayan healing doctor has done a thing, uh, Peruvian medicine man. And uh, Paula Runderwood, she was Iroquois. She came to our site and did a circle at our site, you know. Uh, she'd been twice. She passed away, but she wrote The Walking People, a really thick book of about 10,000 years of her her family's ancestry, you know. Yeah, it was really interesting, too. But, yeah, so we've had the Native, Native Americans come to the site. Uh, you know, they kind of express an interest. Um, they probably know, you know, I mean, we don't really know all the things about the site, you know, for sure, you know, we're still learning, but um, they kind of respect it, you know. We've been to the Indian Medicine Wheels out in Wyoming, and uh, mm-hmm. they leave little offerings on the fence around the whole, it's like 9,000 foot elevation, and it's an incredible astronomical and ceremonial place, and you see all the offerings that are left around the chain link fence. Sometimes we find that on our, we find flowers and stuff left behind by different people, you know, of all different backgrounds, you know, up there, which is kind of neat, especially on the solstices and equinoxes and some cross-border days, you know. I go up there and say, oh, oh the flowers over there, you know. So it's kind of nice, you know. It's kind of, I think I show in their respect and they're kind of, it's kind of, kind of cool. It looks nice. So. Yeah, I just, um, you kept mentioning cross-quarter days. Can you, can you kind of explain what they are for those people who don't know? 
Yeah, those are, as I mentioned, those are like the August 1st, November 1st, May 1st, and um, if I didn't say February 1st, and they kind of divide the year into four more pots, but those are the beginning of the, they call them the, uh, the mid-season. Those are um, those are what's actually the beginning of the, each season, so May Day is the beginning of summer, August 1st is the beginning of fall, November 1st is the beginning of winter, and February 1st is the beginning of spring. Just a little bit different than we think, you know. We used to say, like, uh-huh. December 21st is the beginning of winter, but you might have also read before they call it midwinter solstice or midsummer solstice. How can it be yeah. the beginning of summer or winter if it's mid? That's because those cross-quarter days are the beginning. And they were more important to people like the Celts, and perhaps the Native Americans too, but I know the Celts for sure because was, it was a bigger festivities on those days than it was on these seasons like summer solstice. They were celebrated too, but not, I guess they weren't as big a deal for some reason. I don't know. That's the history I've read on those, you know. And they all have uh, Celtic names, and I'm sure that other cultures had names for these days too. So we celebrate those too at our museum, you know. Um, so um, we don't get as many people turn out for those cross-quarter days. It's usually the seasons. We get most of our visitors that want to see that because they're more familiar with that, I think. But, yeah. Um, yeah. But Stonehenge has that, too. You know, Stonehenge has those alignments, uh, with the cross-quarter days, the quarter days, the seasons, and then yeah. the lunar standstills, too. So we have with Stonehenge, basically, we have, including our true north-south alignment. And in star alignments, we have, and to my, I've read so much about Stonehenge, I don't recall any star alignments, you know, uh, or even any with Venus, you know, but other cultures did look at that, you know, Venus or the Pleiades, you know, some of the constellations, um, mm-hmm. very, very important. The, the different cultures did sometimes a little different thing, you know, on that. Okay. Hey, uh, Dennis, we have um, th- approaching three minutes left, and uh, <laughs> yeah, you are hoping to get your book out soon, and if you want to give out any of your websites or any other information, uh, you know, what's the status of your book? And, you know, we kind of start winding down the show and hopefully uh, within the next few minutes, uh, Barbara's not going to fire me. Okay, yeah, because you could, well, it's kind of like, I, I know I don't want to have that King Tut's curse on you, you know, or something like that, so uh, hopefully by tomorrow, well, hopefully the next email I get from you tomorrow is not what I saw, you know, before, <laughs> you know, if I don't hear from you, I might think the wrong thing, too, if I don't, if I don't hear from you again, I'll know what happened, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so they can reach us, you know, we have a phone number on our website, StonehengeUSA.com, uh, email address is on there, too, and then um, we have the um, the app which is really good, you know, going to the app, and you can actually tour our site that way, which is really good. And Facebook's a really good way, too, you know. Like I mentioned, I think we have, like, 9,000 Facebook. It's easy to put something on there real quick, you know. And um, and so, uh, it, you know, we'll be celebrating the, the, the winter solstice, and, um, uh, you know, we're going to continue with our research at our museum and anything that – actually, this week, we're going to be doing some more, I believe, excavation, so in this cold weather. Uh, uh, the, she goes to Florida for the winter. I think she's leaving in another couple of weeks. But this week, gonna, I think the temperature is going to be close to freezing. But she's still intending to come up Thursday, uh, Thursday and Friday this week. I think we'll see what happens. I hope she does. You know, so because uh, it's going to be rather difficult to dig when everything's frozen in the ground. I think so. Hopefully, it warms up for her. And then we wouldn't see her until probably next May, you know, if she goes, if this doesn't happen this week. So we're hoping to maybe get in. She's, what she's looking for, actually, is a habitat site. It's away from the main site. It's outside that big 2,500-foot serpentine wall. 
Uh, we don't think people live in the main site. Again, we think it's more of a ritual area, and it was sacred, so they would not contaminate it by living on it. They would live outside of that. And so she did find, in uh, 1991, she found a workshop and found uh, different types of material that came from uh, the North Shore of Boston, actually. It was imported to our hill, and they're making tools. And she wants to get back into that area and see if she can, you know, actually locate some sort of a habitat, if you would, you know, where they were actually living. So that's been her last two months she's been doing that. So hopefully she can discover it. Hey, Dennis, I'm so sorry, but (laughs) we are out of time. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you and Mark and uh, both of you. Thank you so much and and your audience, too. Thank you so much for having me on this evening. I look forward to uh, talking to you again for sure. Yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. Thank you, Dennis and Barbara. Yeah. <laughs> Good night, uh, guys. Well, thank you so much. Good night now. Have a nice week. Bye-bye. Bye. We'll see everyone tomorrow night.